This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Jim Sutter, CEO of the U.S. Soybean Export Council. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by CropLife America. Learn about the EPA regulatory process at croplifeamerica.org slash federal pesticide regulations. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with USEC CEO Jim Sutter next. The Environmental Protection Agency's high review standards help keep Americans safe. The agency's rigorous review process sets the standard for protecting the public and environment. That's why only 1 in 10,000 pesticides make the journey from the lab to the field. In fact, on average, it takes more than 11 years to develop data for and move fully through the EPA approval process for pesticides. Through federal preemption, EPA keeps millions of Americans safe by setting standards and creating uniform labels and packaging for pesticides. Learn more by visiting croplifeamerica.org slash federal pesticide regulation. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. The issues facing global agriculture over the past several months have been nearly too many to mention. Jim Sutter, CEO of the U.S. Soy Export Council, says there may be a silver lining in those issues farmers have faced. Well, I think one of the good things from this is it has really raised the importance of food and raised the importance of the work that our farmers do and made people all around the world appreciate the fact that we have uh, adequate or normally we have had adequate food supplies, and now they want to make sure that we do something to ensure that going forward. Is there a concern from an end user or from the soy industry uh, about available supply? We've been at periods of time when there was a surplus, and we've been at periods of time that the supplies were very, very tight and carryover stocks razor thin. Where are we now? Well, I think if you look just at this year, uh, we're at pretty, we're, we're certainly on the, we're leaning towards very razor thin supplies. The world needs for the U.S. to grow a good crop of soybeans, and I would say our U.S. farmers are reacting to that. I mean, we've seen, uh, you know, a record number of acres intended to be planted. We'll see how it all turns out, but I think everything that's happening tells me that we'll have a, a good supply of soybeans, and, and I think that's what we're that's what we're communicating to buyers around the world is that the US farmers are reacting to this need and that there will be this supply coming the chances are i think that uh, south america will you know that they normally don't have two droughts in a row so they'll probably have a good crop down there next year a better crop than this year so i think the world will get back into a more normal supply situation and then you know jeff we're never all that far away from uh, being extremely tight to being a little bit more in surplus. And, and I'm certainly not here to predict a surplus because that's not at all what we hear the world saying. But I don't think we're that far away from getting back to a more normal situation. So we, so we continue our efforts to try and grow demand. We're, we're not at all in a situation where we're telling people to slow down with demand. We want to uh, be communicating that we will have a reliable supply to feed the world and that they should continue to plan to use lots of U.S. soy around the world. Jim Sutter, I'm not pulling you into a lobbying position with re- regard to farm policy. I'd like to make an observation, and I think it tells something of the day. The last time that I recall 
a Department of Agriculture, a Secretary of Agriculture, suggesting that we needed to increase production would take me back to Earl Butts. And <laughs> lately, this administration has been talking about how do we boost production. There was talk about uh, the 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 uh, double cropping situation between wheat and soybeans. But regardless of, of what commodity it is, the discussion of, in, in, in Washington is, we've got to produce more. It is quite a different scenario. I remember the old uh, plant fence row to fence row from Earl Butts' uh, comments. Yeah, uh, so it's been a long time since we've had that uh, in our minds. But, you know, the world needs it today. Now, that said, there have been a lot of extraordinary things happen which were not on people's radar screens. I mean, the the, 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 the the lack of supplies out of Ukraine and Russia, the problems with the crop in South America, all that kind of created this perfect storm scenario. But, again, I think it gives the opportunity to really highlight the reliability of the U.S. as a supplier and the fact that our farmers are stepping up and planting, you know, record number of acres of crops We'll be there to try and supply as much as we can to the world. And especially as you see other countries around the world perhaps uh, shunning their or, or backing away from their international customers, the U.S. is continuing to do that. And I think that will, will, will uh, pay us dividends in the years to come as we're continued to be seen as this reliable supplier. Three primary products, the soybean itself, soybean oil, soybean meal. How has the paradigm shifted, and is the paradigm shifting again with regard to these three primary commodities? Livestock numbers, fuel, food, how are things changing, and is this on the horizon of the Soy Export Council? Yes, very much. That's a great question. And, uh, you know, I think people probably have undoubtedly heard about the, all of the talk for renewable diesel and the new ways to use or, or produce renewable fuels. So there's a lot of demand. There's been a lot of investment in our industry, specifically in new soybean crushing plants and in renewable diesel production plants. There's been a lot of that announced uh, over the last uh, couple of years, and it's you know a lot of it is underway and being constructed. So what we think that means is that. You know, there'll be new demand for oil, so we likely won't, we won't have growing supplies of oil produced in the U.S. to export, because it'll be consumed domestically, but we do believe that we'll have growing supplies of meal to export. So we are working with customers around the world and talking to them about the benefits of meal produced from U.S. soybeans, and whether it's crushed in a plant here in the U.S. or currently crushed in a plant internationally, we're just focused on the good quality of meal that comes out of U.S. soybeans. But we think there will be more meal coming, and we're our teams around the world are already doing work trying to identify the best target markets for that meal and, and starting to have those conversations in markets. Now, these investments, they're not going to, you know, it's not like you flip a light switch and have a new soybean processing plant. These are hundreds of millions of dollar investments and take years to actually get up into production. But we think in three to five years, we could have several million tons more soybean meal that the U.S. will want to export. And we want to make sure that uh, the, that it's not a surprise to any customers overseas 
And so we have markets lined up for that. But we're doing a lot of work on that. And we think it's, we think it's quite exciting. The other final point I'd make on that, Jeff, uh, because it's important, we, we continue to tell customers around the world that, that import U.S. soybeans, that we also believe that there will be a supp- continued supply of U.S. soybeans going out of the U.S. We're not going to get out of the soybean export business and process all the beans that we grow in the U.S. I think it'll be a balance of both. I, my, my guess is that we'll see, as, as all this happens and this strong demand for soybeans that this will lead to, we'll see farmers continually grow the amount of land that goes into soy production. So we'll have a good supply of both soybeans and meal for export to international customers. So let's talk about global livestock numbers, cattle, hogs, poultry. Just in those three, how have you seen their numbers change? How is it affecting demand for for soy, either from the U.S. or for from global providers? I tell you, it's been... Uh, I've been a little worried. Uh, I thought we would see declines in animal numbers as we went through the pandemic, and I was real. I thought we'd see a, a significant drop in demand, but we really haven't seen that. And in fact, kind of like we saw in the U.S., but we've seen it on a global basis as people had these lockdowns and things that they were contending with. Uh, the demand for meat and for products generally has remained quite good and strong. So poultry numbers have been up. There continues to be this increase that we see more people wanting to consume poultry. Um, I think uh, pork demand, with the exception of China, where they're still dealing with the ASF situation, and that's kind of a separate situation, uh, I think pork demand's pretty pretty good. And uh, and cattle numbers also continue strong. When we see, we see a resurgence in some countries or a growing demand, I don't know if so much a resurgence, growing demand is better, term uh, for the dairy industry, with the dairy industry enjoying uh, good production in several different places around the world. Recently, you were in Mexico and participating in an aquaculture meeting. That's something that the soy checkoff has been working with for a number of years, and your chairman, Doug Winter, has exhaustive experience there in seeing aquaculture grow uh, around the world. What do you see of aquaculture, and is that a door opening uh, for soy demand? Absolutely. We we are bullish on the future of aquaculture. You know, it's a very efficient way to produce protein. It's the largest single traded uh, meat protein in the world. There's more aquaculture that goes from one country to another than any other, and we see demand for it continuing to grow. Uh, the The amount of Fed, aqua, fed uh, fish or so aquaculture, produced aquaculture versus wild catch. We now, for the last few years, have had more aquaculture. And I think it's uh, at this conference uh, where I was that that was what they continued to talk about, is the future of the seafood industry is in growth of aquaculture production because you just can't do it sustainably uh, with a wild catchery situation around the world. And I think that soy is really appreciated as an uh, ingredient for various fish diets. And as you said, the soy checkoff has been doing a lot of work over the years. Uh, one of the recent things that has really caught on, in 2013, uh, we took technology that was developed in Auburn University for intensive pond raceway systems. So think of a channel that you can build in a pond, but you actually grow all your fish in this channel, 
where you can feed them and you can keep them controlled. So you can, if you need to medicate them, if you need to harvest them, whatever you need to do, they're in a place that's easily controlled. You can harvest the waste because it's all right there, but you still have the whole surface water, uh, the surface of the pond to provide oxygen for the fish. And these, we introduced three cells. We using this technology in China in 2013. Today there are over 9,000 of them in use in China. They're in use throughout Southeast Asia, and here in uh, in the Americas at the the World Aquaculture Foundation meeting, it was a topic of discussion for many people. It it sort of triples the production capability of a particular pond. So it's really been a game changer in terms of aquaculture production. And when you put that together with feeding modern uh, floating fish feed produced with soybean meal in many cases, it's a, it's a really good combination. And it's one of the ways that I have just, I think it's such a great use of checkoff resources and a great way to help help people around the world do better. And while you're doing that, you're growing the demand for your product. So that, that kind of seems like what the checkoff was designed to do from my per- international eyes perspective. It appears to me that Europe was the first group that started to put high standards on sustainable production. And it was the U.S. soy farmer that was able to satisfy the demands of the European customer. So how has sustainability played a role in identifying and bringing new customers to the U.S. or maintaining customers for U.S. soy, and is our sustainability story one as such that in the long run will prove an advantage? Yeah, that. Uh, thank goodness for the work that U.S. soy farmers and uh, farmers in general and USDA has done over the years in helping to ensure we have such, a, such sustainable farms and we have great messaging and great data to share with global customers. The uh, the way that farmers produce crops today, uh, the, the, the reduced erosion, the reduced amount of energy required, the reduced uh, amount of water required, all of these things are are great uh, things that that help us identify and put in very solid uh, solid data points for the for the aqua, for the sustainable production of, of U.S. soy that goes into aquaculture producers or poultry or pork producers. So, yes, it does create an advantage for the U.S. We have this this uh, verification tool called the U.S. Soy Sustainability Assurance Protocol. Sorry for the long name. SSAP, we call it. But uh, this year, about 45% of the soy that is leaving the country carries with it an SSAP verification certificate that then helps the customer around the world to be able to market their products and say that they were fed with sustainable raw materials. In addition, we have a logo, uh, the U.S. Soy Inside, so sort of think of the Intel Inside type logo, but we have a similar thing for U.S. Soy that customers around the world who are buying this verified sustainable soy can utilize on their products. And it's now being used, uh, I'm not sure the number of countries, but the latest number I saw was about 900 SKUs primarily in Asia, but a little bit in the Americas too. But it's really becoming a point of difference for for people to be marketing their products worldwide. When the trade skirmish began between the U.S. and China, we realized our vulnerability 
because of one customer that took so much of the U.S. product, losing that customer would have a detrimental effect. So now, is there work to diversify the customer base, or is there a diversity uh, of customers uh, that we yeah. can gain? Yeah, that is a great point. And, and yes, it has been top of mind for us to be thinking about how do we diversify markets you know we're so we're so pleased to be a great supplier to China, and we're so we're celebrating our 40th anniversary this year of work in China. So we're, you know, happy to have that market and have great long-term customers there. But anytime you get such a you know a fairly high percentage of your your production going to one destination, you think, hey, we better diversify a little. So we have been working on that, and I've. We're seeing some real successes, and uh, you know, uh, I think I've mentioned before, maybe, but Egypt is one that I really like to talk about. We've got a seventy-five to eighty percent U.S. market share in Egypt, and that that market continues to grow. Now, taking uh, almost, it looks like they'll take over four million tons in this marketing year, up from uh, a million tons about six or seven years ago. So they have really continued to grow, and that's because of growth in demand for poultry and aquaculture in Egypt. And I like to think that the work that our team has done there has been very helpful to that industry and helped them bring in good technology and just grow the way that they consume soy. Uh, other markets, you know, Mexico, a good neighbor of the United States, they are a good customer, and they continue to grow in terms of their bean and meal imports that they take in. Another country that where people, you know, probably doesn't roll off the tip of most people's tongue, but has been an important growth market that we're really focusing our diversification efforts in is Bangladesh. Uh, they continue to grow and, and like Egypt, it's, uh, they're taking product, they're taking soybeans in, they process them there in modern crushing plants, and then they feed their poultry and their aquaculture industry which is consumed by their roughly 200 million people in the uh, Bangladesh population. So it's the, those are those are all great diversification stories that I like to share just to show that we're continuing to try and work on that and and I think we're having some successes. Jim, there was some discussion lately about the value of investment in trade by the US government with foreign market development funds and market access program funds. Do you see the advantage of those, and do they pay dividends for the industry? Oh, I think they sure do. And, uh, you know, FMD and MAP funds are something that our organization utilizes. They're sort of the, I describe them to people as being almost matching funds. So because we have underlying checkoff and uh, membership funds, we are then able to apply to USDA, the Foreign Ag Service, to participate in the MAP and FMD programs. And those funds then provide additional funding for us to do our international marketing activities. And this recent study that you mentioned, it showed that that the return has been $24.50 in additional export revenue for every dollar invested into export promotion. So taking those government dollars, putting them together with the farmer's own checkoff dollars or industry dollars that we have, it's really a great public-private partnership that is shown is showing itself to be really delivering results. So uh, I think that is just a great program. You know, there's been a lot of discussion over uh, the last few years 
about should that program grow. I think it's been since uh, 2002 that that program hasn't uh, had any additional funding. It seems like it would be a place for more funds to be invested given the uh, importance of international markets to U.S. agriculture. And I'm sure that'll get some discussion as the new farm bill uh, really gets, uh, as discussion around that gets by. Jim, what's the effect of 15 and $17 soy prices on your plight and on the global industry? Yeah, that's also a very good question. I have been uh, watching very carefully for places where we see, you know, I call it demand destruction. That's not what we want to see. We like to see growing demand. We don't want to see high prices uh, hurting demand. I think there are a few places that that's happening. I think, um, you know, in countries that are where the economic situation is tighter and people, the disposable income availability is, is less, like a place like Indonesia. I think we're actually seeing a decline in demand. Uh, people are just able, can't afford as much. They're importing fewer soybeans. Uh, recently in China, I've, I mentioned earlier, I don't, I don't know that it's so much the price only there, but certainly there's talk about the high prices, focusing them on reducing, uh, on reducing the amount of soybean meal that they're using. They, they're just coming out of this ASF situation, so we have that also as a factor in China. But that's a place to watch for reduced demand. But otherwise, I've been pleasantly surprised that we haven't seen as much demand uh, destruction as I would have thought. So from the demand side, um, yes, it's certainly on people's minds, and it's and it's high, and they're they're concerned about it. Uh, but but I think. Surprising to me that demand's holding up as well as it is. I would say certainly on the on the on the producer side, I think you know high prices are good. It stimulates demand. It gives people um, a return on their investment. I, I know that there's concern about input costs though, and we we hear a lot about that and and what's happening with all of the costs that producers pay, and what that will look like in the future. So, I know that's. Uh, you know, the cure for high prices is high prices, so we'll see how this turns out. Well, Jim Sutter, you've been on the front lines for the U.S. soybean farmer and the soy industry for a number of years and, and working to create opportunity. We thank you for taking time here on this edition of Open Mike to be with us. Jim, you've been here before, and today you've got the last word. Well, Jeff, thank you so much. I, I just really appreciate the opportunity to highlight people with uh, about some of the exciting things going on in the U.S. soy industry. And I just, uh, I was just, you know, I am a huge believer in the power of collaboration. And, and that's the collaboration with the people that we are, the stakeholders we work with, farmers and all the USEC members, the other trade associations we work with, uh, and, and then our international customers. So I'd just like to say uh, thanks to everybody that's listening that we collaborate with. FAS is a great uh, partner and collaborator. Uh, and, and I think without that, we wouldn't be able to do near as much work as we're able to do, and we wouldn't be nearly as successful. So thank you for the opportunity to communicate, and thank you for the collaboration, too. Our thanks to Jim Sutter, CEO of the U.S. Soybean Export Council, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by CropLife America. Learn about the EPA regulatory process at croplifeamerica.org slash Federal Pesticide Regulation. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Nally.